It's time for another episode of Tucson Means Business, featuring Tucson's top entrepreneurs and leaders in the business world. And now your host, Mark Bishop. And welcome to another Tucson Means Business, proudly sponsored by the 49ers Golf and Country Club. Our beautiful golf course and lovely restaurant with the Rincon Grill, situated on Tanker Verde Road here in Tucson. A great show lined up today, a couple of wonderful people. I'm referring to Andrew Moore, and Andrew is a director of Bluestone Venture Partners. We're going to be finding out uh, some wonderful things that they're doing. And uh, Jim Cantrell, Jim is known affectionately is the rocket man and he's done a lot of other things but uh, he also is on the show today welcome jim thank you and of course welcome andrew thank you well i'd like to talk about you know your backgrounds and where you're from firstly so our listeners can get to know you a little bit uh, you were born and raised andrew in tucson uh, you're a native tucson and uh, but you're uh, what is known as a boomerang right that's right. <laughs> now, whoever heard that name before? Uh, you moved away in 2008 uh, when you graduated from the U of A, but found your way back to Tucson in 2018 when you turned down a job offer from Amazon to join their Seattle headquarters. Hmm. So instead, Andrew decided to move back to Tucson and help launch Bluestone Venture Partners uh, with Bluestone co-founders. That's Myra Aspinall and Tom Nikolov, right? That's right. Hmm. Did you know uh, them before you decided to move back to Tucson? No, I did not actually. So uh, uh, met some other people that knew them and knew they were launching a fund and the timing was working out just perfectly for when I was graduating business school. So uh, instead of going back to Amazon and, you know, being a, a little piece of a, of a big machine, you know, wanted to come back to Tucson and, you know, give back to the roots and really start investing in, in Tucson and in Arizona to help fuel some of the innovation that's out here. So after moving away, you received your master's degree, though, from USC, right, in 2009. Yes. And soon after, you began uh, your career uh, with Ernst & Young. Uh, that's uh, M&A uh, Transaction Support Team. That's in San Francisco. Yes. Right. And then in 2012, you joined Palo Alto-based private equity firm, where you invested growth capital into a variety of private companies across a diverse set of industries. Uh, so what drew you into this particular industry, do you think, Andrew, so early? I think it was just really wanting to to understand entrepreneurs and their businesses and help fuel and fund their vision. And, you know, the really exciting part about my job is I just get to learn so much about, you know, these entrepreneurs who have started these businesses and have this vision and they're executing on it. And I can learn about what they're doing and, and help back them and support them and create a lot of growth. And that's really exciting. And seeing a diverse set of industries is just really cool. because We're so going to dig into there. what you do because it's very, uh, well, it's important <clears throat> to what you do. I mean, you know, everybody, venture capital is great and businesses are good and jobs and all the rest of it. But when you start talking about health and finding ways to bring costs down <laughs> and, and expedite operations and so on, uh, it gets great. So we're going to dig into that. My other guest is Jim Cantrell. By the way, Jim, any relation at all to the singer Cantrell? <laughs> Jerry Cantrell. Did, did you, I, I'm sure we're Lana related Cantrell, somewhere, but I haven't found him on Ancestry.com yet. Okay. All righty. He's the founder of several entrepreneurial startups. You may know some of these wherever you are, including Vector, uh, Stratspace, Vintage Exotics, Competition and Engineering. Affectionately known as the Rocket Man, he was on the founding team of Moon Express and SpaceX and has worked closely with uh, Aichi, 
Isai. 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 Uh, Skybox Imaging, Planet IQ, Planet Labs, and Rocket Lab. Man, that's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. A- any favorites out of that lot? Yeah, Isai is kind of my, my personal favorite just because it's a young bunch of uh, entrepreneurs who uh, pulled me out of the ether uh, to uh, help them get started, and uh, they've just done a great job. I mean, they're, uh, they've got like six satellites up, and uh, they're over in Finland. And uh, it's this, this this mishmash of people from all over the world, frankly, yeah. that are there. Yeah, they're they're just a great bunch. I really love them. So, so what would they be doing with all these satellites? What are they? So, so they're they're taking uh, radar images of the surface of the Earth, and the characteristic there that's interesting is you can do it day and night. So they're using radar waves to to image the Earth. Okay. And uh, one of the more famous things they did was during the last hurricane that hit the Bahamas last summer, they took the the famous images of of the islands when they were half underwater as the as the eye was passing over. So it's that kind of real, really revolutionary imagery that they're able to do. Sure sounds like it. And I guess that goes into uh, all sorts of commerce. Yeah, military, commerce, military weather. Uh, yeah, Amazing. Well, you've worked on, what, 45 satellite missions, including Iridium Next. Right. Okay, the Pluto mission. Yeah. Uh, OSIRIS-REx. Yes. And LightSail. Yes. I mean, it's hard enough, Andrew, me getting my mouth around these things, never mind understanding what they did. Can you talk about those missions at all, or are you, yeah. you know, you're going to get hung up later? Yeah, or? no, no. So, so uh, Iridium Next was the second generation of the Iridium phone system satellites that are in orbit, and those were all built in Arizona. They were designed and built here, originally by Motorola. That oh, was really? the first gra- mm. group, yeah, up in Chandler. And then uh, those were flown 20 years ago, and I got involved with that. Uh, in the late stages, and then helped them build their second generation constellation when I first moved here to Arizona uh, about uh, 12 years ago. Right. And then another one I got involved with here in Arizona was OSIRIS-REx, and that's uh, the University of Arizona uh, built this uh, mission to go out and retrieve a sample of an asteroid. And uh, again, I got pulled in late in that one to help uh, help bring together some of the mission operations about how do you how do you orbit about an object that you don't even know what it looks like and what its mass properties are. Right. So it was kind of an esoteric problem that I was one of the few people in the world that had had any experience with that. Hmm. So uh, it was I was the proverbial needle in a haystack that uh, <laughs> Dante Loretta found here in Tucson. So uh, isn't that amazing? So you're not a Tucsonan? Nope. I, uh, but you came from where? I came from Los Angeles originally, but don't tell anybody that. Oh, well, you're close enough. You're a neighbor. There you go. You <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the desert, my friend. Yeah. Um, what about light sale? What was that about? So uh, that was one of the first successful commercial solar sails ever ever flown. It was built uh, by the Planetary Society, and I was the it was sort of my brainchild, and I was the program manager on that. Wow. And we we started out in the in the late '90s trying to fly something called Cosmos One, which was the first private solar sail that was funded by the Arts and Entertainment Network. We flew it out of a Russian submarine out of Murmansk, <laughs> and uh, the, the missile that we took the warheads off of and put the satellite on top of blew up on its way to space, so it didn't make it. But uh, it was an interesting experience where we got to go out on Russian submarines. And yeah. then uh, light sail well, it came about uh, five years later where we adopted these, these micro spacecraft that were becoming all the rage. And uh, we flew two of those uh, in orbit, and one's still up there flying right now. So Bill Nye uh, <clears throat> takes credit for inventing solar sailing, but it really it's not. He, he's just a good showman here. Okay. Andrew, anytime you want to jump in and ask questions or touch on anything, you're most welcome. You know that. Great. Thank uh, you. We have a chat. So your business career then saw you serving as CEO of IDEA. Okay, is that right. correct? Yeah, idea. Yeah, idea. Uh, it's a biometrics company, yeah. and you held positions at NASA and French space agency correct. CNES. 
uh, early in your career. Wow. NASA must yeah. have been exciting. Yeah, that was my, my early break in my career when I was in college. Uh, my major professor uh, uh, had this opportunity to go get a uh, internship at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and that was 1986. Yeah, and I know I'm dating myself, <laughs> but I went down there, and uh, my boss was, you know, the program manager for the first lunar mission from the United States, and I got you know, introduced to all these really famous people. Uh, and I was, I was just a kid from a little town outside of Los Angeles and I had no, no right to be where I was, but, uh, I, I found myself in the middle of this. Right. And, uh, yeah. they, they took a liking to me and I took a liking to them and things kind of went from there. And it was because of my efforts there, we were working with, uh, the Soviets and the French at the time. This was, you know, during the cold war, if you remember mm -hmm. how that was, and, uh, you know, the Soviets were supposed to be our enemies. Well, the Planetary Society, uh, mm. I referenced the light sail. Right. Was, and that was Carl Sagan and, and, and Bruce Murray and Lou Friedman. They were trying to bring the, the Soviets and the, and the U.S. closer together in space. So they were involving their Soviet colleagues from space uh, in the Soviet Union with NASA, but it was unofficial, right? So I became involved in this unofficial thing. And then the French Space Agency was sort of the catalyst to this, who was also connected through the Planetary Society. And so... That's how I ended up at, at the French Space Agency was I invented something that they needed for a Mars mission. It was a balloon mission to Mars in, in uh, 1994. So that's why I went over there. And uh, when I was there, I learned Russian and I learned about the Soviets. And Yeah, you speak a few languages. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. tell you what, Andrew, I mean, uh, I'm blown away with this guy's career. I mean, uh, I tell you what. You, you're just a young boy in Los Angeles. What do you do? Look up at the stars every night? What ever, ever got you into this industry? The only thing I ever knew for sure I wanted to do in life was race cars. Race cars? Yeah, race cars, and that's the God's honest truth. It's a long way from building rockets and Tell me. everything else. Isn't it? <laughs> Tell you what, a lot we'll of come... different kinds of propulsion and acceleration. It goes fast, yeah. yeah. Machines, I love machines, and, and I love to build fast machines. All right, well, we're going to keep that in mind too. Now, Andrew, not everyone wants to go back to school. <laughs> right, but you did. That's right. In fact, you went back to school in 2016 after being accepted to the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. What was that all about? I uh, just wanted to uh, to add the MBA to my tool belt, and the University of Virginia has a really top program, and uh, was really fortunate to go out to Charlottesville and be there for two years, just uh, you know, working alongside some really talented and incredible uh, classmates. Right. Uh, well, I had an Olympian in, in my section, I had a Navy SEAL in my section, just lots of engineers, lots of really smart, talented people. And just Interesting. So while Jim's doing his thing, you're the up and coming <laughs> the other way. But while you were there at U of A, um, uh, you were an investment fellow with the university. What is the Virginia's seed fund? This helps uh, fund, uh, what, equity in early stage startups? Yes. Yeah, so uh, a couple of years ago, the university had a mandate they, where they would invest uh, $10 million into university-affiliated startups. And so they had $10 million in an evergreen fund. And, you know, if it's coming out of research or a professor starting businesses or even sometimes uh, alumni that have started businesses, they, they can uh, be eligible for early stage seed capital, you know, right. a couple hundred thousand dollars at a time. So after graduation, that's when you move back to Tucson to join Bluestone and lead their diligence and investment team. Yes. So right. uh, we've been been around for about 18 months now, done, done three deals that we've worked on and invested in and already having uh, our first exit in one of those. So we're so this is Bluestone Venture Partners based yes. here in Tucson and um, a venture capital fund capitalizing on the strength and innovation found in entrepreneurial companies in the Southwest. This isn't every Tom, Dick and Harry though, is it? I mean, you specialize mainly in 
uh, health, right? Yes. So healthcare and life sciences, and within those verticals, we even kind of narrow it down to really uh, medical devices, uh, diagnostics, and in digital health. So we're we're staying away from a lot of the really big biotech or pharma plays just because they require a lot of capital. Right. And it's a really long time horizon for investment. Okay. Um, NATO states. So yes, so New Mexico, Arizona, <laughs> Texas, Oklahoma. What, this what does that this mean? is an acronym we've given, and you know what it really is about is that these are underserved areas where there's been a dearth of venture capital in the past. You know, most of the deals, especially in the healthcare space, are centered around the Bay Area or Boston, and you have all these funds with a lot of dry powder chasing so few deals. So right. it bids up the prices and the valuations, and you know you see these companies raising Series A financing at. 80 100 million dollar valuations and it, it's it's a lot harder to to have a successful exit when you're having those kind of sky high valuations so we we really see the opportunity to invest in some really good technology and management teams in the southwest at rational valuations hmm does that sound to you jim you know i'm really glad to see you guys here mm-hmm. yeah because i i think there's a lot of innovation in this area like you say it's underserved and mm-hmm. those of us that have to go to silicon valley to raise it we we, we just would rather not <laughs> yeah and and silicon valley doesn't always want to come out here to, to no, do that so trust me they don't <laughs> this is it uh, folks wherever you're listening uh, to this program i can assure you tucson is one of these uh, cities on the maps of america that is uh, forever in the news uh, winning awards for this and that uh investors coming here big companies coming here we've just had caterpillar come um any others you can think of off the top Uh, all sorts of companies are moving in and so is the money and that's an important thing and why not well i mean look at raytheon a city in within their own right aren't they Uh, Mm -hmm. Ten thousand odd employees uh, expanding again you know uh andrew you talk two fifty thousand to a million in size right is that sort of a comfortable? Yeah, that's comfortable. Comfortable check size for the companies we invest in, and to you know provide meaningful capital where we can actually get a board seat and you know provide additional value beyond just the money and really linking them to our net- networks and expertise. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, especially in this size range, you know, for the companies that need that growth capital and it just really hasn't been here in in Arizona. Right. This is really helping move the needle and uh, getting them to to commercialization for their. For their, just, uh, just do me a little yeah. favor. Just explain a Series A and a Series B sure. for any of my listeners that may not know that. So these are typically the the early stage financing rounds for companies, and it, it goes alphabetically. But when you're really starting off and you have your first institutional round with venture capital investors, you'll raise a Series A. And this is usually pre-commercialization for your product or technology or service. But what it is is... You know they're taking a pretty big risk, but they're putting this capital in to to help you hit those milestones, to build out the prototypes, to to get to key development things, to get through regulatory agencies, and then you know eventually when you do hit those milestones, you're going to need more money to to grow and scale fast. And so you do later series uh, such as Series B, Series C, Series D, okay. further on down the line. Right. Um, well, it's sort of uh, comforting, isn't it, to know that if you if you get it done in the early stages. There's a very good chance you're going to keep getting the rest, right? Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, you Is, know, so what happens in the first series then if you're not doing the job? If you're not doing the job, your uh, company company <laughs> goes under, and you know what happens you, to the investors' money? Well, it depends on how they structured it. Some of them might walk away uh, made completely whole, and the the CEO and entrepreneur and the employees are out of money. 
Um, so it really depends on how they structure it and what, what happens if you're able to at least sell the assets. Jim, you've been an entrepreneur for a long time. What can you relate to all that he was just saying? Yeah, no, I've been through all that. I've, I've been on the investor side doing diligence and I've mm-hmm. been on the begging side raising it, you know, so I've gone all the way through Series C on uh, some, and you know, I've, I've you know, done a lot of uh, seed capital raising too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a completely different skill set. It's a completely different proposition right. when you when you go to the the, the VC. So there's a lot of what we call angel, <clears throat> excuse me, angel investors here in Tucson. Typically high net worth individuals that like what what you're uh, what you're pitching, and, and typically they like the local angle. Mm-hmm. But there's not that many institutional VCs here. So so you're the only one I really really think is a true VC that ah, I've heard of. Yeah. So there we go. There's, there's, a, few there's a couple of them that have started in the last 18 months or Correct. so, kind of yeah. all at the same time, which is, which is great because, you know, there traditionally hasn't been much in, in Tucson at all. And so right. as we start getting some of this this capital in here and could start investing in these startups, you know, some of them are going to scale big and be the next right. Ventana. And those will spin off other smaller companies and other entrepreneurs. Right. And it's a whole wealth creation. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so it's people a- are hearing about your success as a bluestone then. Right. Right. Because if I was competition, I'd be saying, well, hang on a minute. They're getting what maybe we could be doing here. So this is why we're attracting perhaps a few more that want to get into that. But then again, you're specializing in, in the health. Give us an idea. I think you've just got a you've just landed a big uh, deal, haven't you? So so we're actually exiting one of our portfolio companies already uh, in the cancer diagnostic space. Mm. Um, we, we invest in their Series B round back last May, and they're currently being acquired by Exact Sciences, um, which is a $15 billion uh, public company, they do the Cologuard test for uh, colon cancer detection. Right, they're the sponsor bo- of the Cologuard yeah, Classic. Yeah, that's right. This particular weekend, although this is not dated, this uh, podcast it'll go forever. But the reality is, this time of year, every year in Tucson, we have the um, uh, the seniors play. Uh, golf tournaments and this is particular one is sponsored by the Cologuard uh, scenario and uh, it's very popular a lot of people go to that absolutely it's very good so That's we're excited great. tell me about a few of your portfolio companies that you've invested in so far what differentiates them from the others sure maybe i'll start with a couple of the arizona ones we've done uh, and the ones we're excited about so uh, for example, GT Medical Technologies is a Phoenix-based company, and they're in the uh, brain cancer space. And so they have a FDA-cleared device that's you know, a collagen tile about the size of a postage stamp, and they stick CCM-131 seeds, um, which are radioactive, within this tile. And when the neurosurgeons take out the tumor, they then are able to place this tile in with this high-dose radiation that has a very short half-life, only 9.7 days, and it's able to give targeted radiation to slow the, the growth of the tumor. A um, uh, vast majority of brain, brain tumors do come back just because surgeons can only take so much out of it. And the standard of care is to do external beam radiation therapy where you have to wait at least two weeks before after surgery before you can start that because you need to give time for the wound to heal. Hmm. And so during that time, really highly aggressive brain tumors like glioblastoma, which John McCain had, they can already start recurring. And so if, if you can place these things at the site uh, at the time of surgery, you get uh, clinical data that's showing extended median survival time. You're getting better quality of life aspects for the patients themselves. They don't have to endure six weeks of 
of uh, radiation therapy five days a week. Yeah. And you're giving them new hope and new new tool in the tool belt of neurosurgeons. Isn't that amazing, Jim? Yeah. The, the inventions are astronomical. It's like a little, you see on a sci-fi type movie, you know, you put the thing into the head, uh, it goes to work, it does its little job. Well, they close up, obviously, and, and this thing stays in there, is that it, right? It stays in there and uh, there's no need to go back in and, and uh, pull it out again um, because it's a collagen tile and then the, the little seeds are inert after the uh, about 45 days or so. That's, I tell yep. you what, I wonder what next is coming around the corner. All right, well, give us another example. That was a ripper. Sure. And then, uh, you know, another example uh, is a company. It, it was in the Bay Area, so outside of our native states, but we were really excited about it. And it's called Broadspot Imaging Corp. And they're in the ophthalmic space. They have a medical device called a, a ultra-wide field fundus camera, which is used for imaging the retina. And retinal specialists will use it with oh, their patients. We're on eyes now. Okay. Yeah, we're on eyes now. So, we're coming so, down from the top of the head. <laughs> that's right. We'll work our way down. Well, this is an important one. Yeah, this, this is exciting because... There, the the market's been around for about fifteen or twenty years. Uh, some other big players in the in the industry uh, helped develop this market and build the market need for it. But the units that they have are giant tabletop units that are you know very expensive, eighty, ninety thousand dollars um, a piece, and they take up a whole room. And these ophthalmologists and retinal specialists, they they generally are working with an older population that sometimes is less mobile. So to when you are running a clinic to have to bring them mm -hmm. into a room, do all the imaging, sit them down, take them out again, um, you know, that, that really hurts the throughput of the clinic and, and slows things down. Mm -hmm. What this company we've uh, invested in is doing is they have a handheld version of this um, with, with better, better quality, true color image, wow. uh, a lower price point, much lower price point than, than the other competitors out there. And so they can actually bring the unit to the to the patient, image it, um, get everything uploaded to the cloud, and, right. and analyze those images. And well, you've um, gone from a room, you said, to handheld to a handheld device. So it's like going from a big uh, mainframe computer down to down to a mobile phone in one generation. So this is this for detached retinas, uh, for, for for how deep in the for, eye? For all different things uh, that a retinal specialist would really look at, from diabetic retinopathy to, to other diseases of the eye that they're going to be wanting to to image and get a better understanding of what's going on. Okay. Because you know the eyes the eyes are are a window to the soul, as they oh, say. Very much and so. if you can do all sorts of great things with retinal images and do it much easier, faster and cheaper and better quality, it can really help with the diagnose, diagnosis. You know, Jim, diseases. I get this feeling that uh, we may be past it, but the kids coming and going to live mm -hmm. to 150. With all the things that are happening and uh, eyesight being able to last longer, you know, uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, you're in an interesting industry, aren't you, Andrew? Yeah, it's it's fascinating and it's exciting. And the hardest part about it is that you see all this great technology and these great entrepreneurs who are just so passionate about this. But to actually bring something to market and successfully commercialize it, it's, it's hard. a hard process. And, you know, right. from from not being able to find the right capital to not getting through the regulatory agencies to not getting the, the right reimbursement from uh, from CMS or insurance, all of those challenges, if you fail at any of those, you might not be able to bring this technology to market to help people or reduce costs. There's a lot more to it than uh, meets the eyes in there. Unbelievable. Jim, you, uh, you also uh, 
many boards you've worked on and so on, but uh, a lot of advisory positions as well. Uh, the Planetary Society, as mm-hmm. an example, Atlas Space, Morph 3D, uh, York Space Systems, Infinite Composites, and we talked about uh, ICI and the Sports Car Club of America. <laughs> now, well, now, here's a bit of a diversity for you. Uh, you're an active uh, angel investor. Good to know. Beauty. <laughs> and which of those, the lot of them, gives you the most thrill? I think we know, don't we, Andrew? Oh, it'd have to be the SCCA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, yeah, so while we're on the subject, the SCCA, so that's part of the National Sports Car Club of America. I'm the regional executive and board member of the, re- the Arizona region. And uh, we're the second oldest region in the United States, by the way, behind California. And uh, what we do is we organize uh, professional and amateur races. And uh, with with the economy going down, you know, I took over an aging organization that was in financial uh, dire straits. So part of my mandate has been to turn that around. And so far, we've been fairly successful. We've got money in the bank now, and uh, we're starting to uh, ramp up our our activities again. Good. Now, Uh, is this a Tucson Located this a whole southern Arizona? So it's all of Arizona. Yeah. Okay. So oh. we have uh, members of the board from Tucson, from Phoenix, and so forth. All right. And uh, so we, we do a number of things. Uh, so the Sports Car Club of America then is in all states? Correct. It's a national organization. It is a national, but... Each, okay, so you you've had to turn around the Arizona one. Correct. The region, the all Arizona right. region is a separate region from the national. So do you all race in different states, or correct? How does it yeah, how does it tell us about it? it? Well, it's it's like the FIA, which is the Federation International of Automobile, and so it's the U.S. equivalent of that. Uh, in in our case, it's all volunteer run, so it's it's a, literally a nonprofit club. But they put on historically all the Trans Am races, uh, the Can Am races, uh, and, and so they run Pro Series and Amateur Series. Mm-hmm. They are the top of the top of the Amateur Series in the United States, and the pathway for most of the pro drivers to go through. You know, uh, mm. Mario Andretti went through the SCCA, really? for example. Oh yeah. What sort and, of cars are we doing? Uh, so anywhere from sports cars to Formula cars. And uh, me personally, I, I stick with the with the sports cars because I'm too big for formula cars. But uh, <laughs> give us an idea of your cars. How many do you have? Well, that's a dangerous question. Mm-hmm. I have 21 cars. I'm I'm a bit uh, over over the top on that. All right. And about I think 16 of them are race cars. So for any enthusiasts listening now, give them an idea of what we're talking about. A Porsche 997 Cup car. I've got uh, a Lola Can-Am that Mark. Uh, 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 what the hell's his last name? Anyhow, it was owned by uh, Penske, um, and uh, I've got uh, Shelby Can Am. I've got some old vintage Corvettes. I've got uh, some endurance Porsche 944s that we race, and I even have a quarter miler, an old uh, some nice do you, cars. Do you there. have any favorites of those? Uh, depends on the race, right? Okay. It's, it's, it's like a tool chest, you sure. know. You you pull out a different you, tool for different a different tool, thing. Different right. Well, give us an idea now then of a car and what it would be best suited for. What type of race? So for endurance racing, the Porsches are almost always the best. Really? I, yeah. I started out as racing Corvettes, and Corvettes and Porsches are always against each other, right? And I, I'd start with Corvettes because they were cheap and easy to easy to uh, run in a, in a race. But I kept get, getting beat by the Porsches, and finally I said, damn it, I'm going to join them. So I, uh, I bought a, a number of uh, 997s and 944s, and that's what we go and do endurance races. And so those races are where we go to a road course, and we run 3, 4, 12, 24 hours. So we've run a number of 24-hour races with them, just like Le Mans and Daytona and things cool. like that. Yeah. And then uh, let's go to another extreme. They're the, they're the longest. So is the other extreme just 
short track like yeah, drag like races speed drag yeah. races okay. yeah yeah so I've, I've got a double a altered fuel dragster it's a nostalgic one <laughs> with a you know 2000 horsepower blown engine in the front and okay. i'm actually kind of scared of it but uh my son would love this he, he's uh, he's into cars believe me well there you go see so um you've got to have an outlet that's your sport <laughs> that's, that's your right. outlet it's the whole reason to work i was thinking an money. expensive one andrew to between yeah. you and i i you know um but your current uh, it'd be fair to say, Jim, that your current baby, your hands-on current baby, is the R2 Space, which is providing commercial space ISR services to the U.S. defense and intelligence community to transform the way information is gathered, Correct. assimilated, and acted upon. Now, that sounds heavy. Well, so let me explain. So uh, these are some uh, gentlemen I met when they were in the Pentagon, and uh, one of them is a former SEAL Team 6 guy, and... Uh, he called me about six years ago and uh, wanted my help getting commercial imagery of North Korea to set up a neighborhood watch program. And so once I figured out he wasn't an FBI agent and he was a real guy, <laughs> I actually helped him. Right. And we turned it into a program of records. So for $10 million, we were able to find out when North Korea was going to launch their missiles and have heads up on when they're going to set off their nuclear weapons using commercial imagery. So what we've done is we've, we've started another company called R2 Space which is taking that model and putting it into practice. So what we're doing is creating what we think, well, what we know that DOD needs in terms of data from space, and we're, we're releasing essentially those assets to them. So it's a lot like how the CIA leases airplanes, how, how the Defense Department sometimes will hire out just uh, you know uh, aircraft to fly over and surveil war areas and things mm -hmm. like that. So. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea is to save the Defense Department from really what it's not good at, which is developing new technology. It, it really has a Soviet kind of system where they have a five-year plan, and they set the price, and they set the product. And they really get these very expensive things that work, but they, they, they tend to age out technologically very soon. So what, what our customers are liking about what we're doing is we're providing them with the, the latest technology mm -hmm. funded by private capital and we're giving them the kinds of data when they need it and how they need it. Fabulous. Boy, oh, boy. I'm, I'm, this is a great show. I'm enjoying it immensely. We're going to come right back. Of course, you're listening to Tucson Means Business. And thanks to the 49ers Golf and Country Club that sponsor this show. And we hope you're enjoying it. And we'll be right back. Well, I hope you're enjoying this uh, episode of Tucson Means Business. And, of course, we're very grateful and very proud to have as our sponsor the 49ers Golf and Country Club, a uh, icon tradition here in wonderful Tucson, Arizona. And uh, my particular guest today from the 49ers is the Director of Membership and Tournaments, and his name is Casey Polivchak. Hi, Casey. Hey, Mark. How's it going today? It's going well. Thank you very much. I want to talk about memberships. A lot of talk uh, about golf clubs going down and people not playing again. And we're increasing. What's happening there? You know, the club over the last seven years has just really made a nice big increase in uh, in membership. It's been steady, but if you look at our numbers, you know, year over year, we're definitely on the uh, on the climb. Is there anything specific that you can uh, point the finger at for that? Do you think? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we've got a new owner and he came in and he's just revitalized the club. Um, the club was on the verge of uh, going bankrupt or closing uh, when the new owner stepped in and he's just continued to invest in the in the club, the facilities, the golf course, uh, the restaurant. And he's just uh, just a bit of a blessing for the, the neighborhood, the community, but definitely the uh, the members of 49er Country Club. Well, it's quite unique. It's a beautiful course with trees everywhere for shade. And of course, a lot of people think in the desert. I mean, this particular show goes all over the place, so you never know who's going to hear it uh, or which country for that matter. But should they be visiting Arizona? And uh, I've heard a lot about the 49ers Golf and Country Club. It's easy to find. It's on uh, Tankaverde Road heading east out of town. Anybody can point that way. Your GPS can get it. Not a problem. It's about 12,000. And you can see it because of the entry gates. Very nice entry gates there and you'll see the club on your left which is the Rincon Mountain Grill as you go into the actual golf club and then you'll find the pro shop and so on so it's easy to find from that point of view what would you say to visitors we do have a lot of visitors don't we from the midwest from the north uh, the colder climates and so on as we call friendly our snowbirds mm -hmm. yep. what would you um, say to them about if they haven't been to the 49ers yet Okay, so 49er, I would liken it to a Midwestern-style golf course because mm. of the tree-lined fairways. Um, when we get our snowbirds in, if they're coming out for a, you know, a golf trip, a lot of times I recommend they come play 49er if it's a warm-up round, if they haven't played for, you know, a couple months because of the snow on the ground. Um, you know, the, the thing about it is it's tucked into the corner of the mountains out there. That's what Rincon means All right. um, in the corner. Uh, but the golf course is, uh, it is. It's more traditional tree-lined fairways, um, elevated tees, elevated greens. Um, it's, a, it's a great golf course to play. It's, it's not going to kill you. It's not going to... Uh, you know, have a bunch of huge forced carryovers, desert and cactus. And mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it's not what one thinks. No, it's not for the but desert. Yeah, you got to keep it straight. <laughs> It'll challenge you that way. You got to keep it straight. And of course, if you, you know, if, if it talks your cork at the moment, simply go to the 49ers website, which is 49ercc.com. That's spelled out F-O-R-T-Y-N-I-N-E-R-C-C.com. There you go. Okay, so do that. There's some lovely photographs, great stories to look at, and it'll give you everything about the club. You can't, uh, you can't fail. All right? We're going to be back with Casey another time. You're listening to Tucson Means Business. My special guest today in Tucson Means Business with Mark Bishop, Jim Cantrell, and Andrew Moore, and both in some ways similar to what you do. You know, there's a bit of a stretch, but but it's there. Andrew sides with, of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, th I think you know, really, our our passion for entrepreneurial community here, especially in Southern Arizona, and how you know Southern Arizona has really become a hotbed for some of these different industries, such as the space industry or such as biosciences um, mm -hmm. here, here in town. These are things that we can really leverage and continue to to attract new talent and new companies out here. Well, both high-tech, things of the future. i, I got to ask you this, uh, Jim, uh, just for those who may, um, you know, be concerned. Are we really ever planet Earth in a situation where the government wouldn't tell us that an asteroid could be coming? Well, yeah, I mean, there's no obligation to the government to tell you, but the, the ability for them to keep that a secret, I think, mm -hmm. would be very, very difficult. Hard. All yeah. right. 
do you know of and the people you mix with? Is there anything planned to be able to stop this in case? It's 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 physically very difficult to stop something like that. So right. there's there's a lot of discussion of use of nuclear weapons and things like that. But mm-hmm. the reality is, is it it's just one of those things you just hope never happens. Sure. And uh, so we do what we do best, which is to monitor to see if they're coming. So uh, mm-hmm. the question you have to ask yourself is, do you really want to know or do you not really want to know? It amazes me. You know that movie where they landed on the thing with Bruce Willis. Yeah. Um, I forget the name of it, but Armageddon was it? Um, In space, everything's moving the same pace. Right. Right. I I, I can't get my head around that. It's moving 60,000 miles an hour, whatever it is. And yet, everything's doing the same thing. How do you get it? It's all relative. It's all relative. It's all relative. It's moving coordinate systems. There you go. From from the most. What I want to ask you, Andrew, is this Um, people often compare Tucson's aspirations of becoming a tech startup hotbed. Uh, you know, uh, to being like the next Austin or Denver or Portland. What are your thoughts on this comparison, really? I don't love these comparisons because, you know, I think Tucson is its own unique culture and unique identity, and we don't need to be the next Austin. We don't need to be the next Denver. We'll, we'll never be the next uh, San Francisco, but but that's okay because we have, we have our strengths. We have, uh, you know, industries that we do really well in mining, space, biosciences, as I mentioned before. But we we can leverage these strengths and really create our own identity and uh, attract our own talent. And on top of that, we have our own cultural connection to this to this town and right. what that means and how how it differs from other parts of the country. Okay, so well, you're a millennial. Uh, last summer, a new survey came out that ranked Tucson as last in the country for attracting millennials. Does this hurt the city's ability to continue momentum and growth that they've experienced or we have experienced over the years? Do you think? I think it, I think it does hurt it if we can't attract younger talent, and there's a lot of different task force forces that are that are working right now in Tucson to really you know promote and attract younger workers and keep that talent here. And you know, as I as I said before, you know, I'm a boomerang, so I'm not the best to to speak, but. You know, keeping people here right after college might not be the right thing. Maybe, you know, you let them go to New York or San Francisco, you know, try to tell a 22 year old not to do something. It, it won't be successful. But let them go there. Let them get the experience and some of the big names on their resumes and then attract them back. You know, show them the cost of living, why it's so good to be here in, in right. Tucson versus living in a $4,000 a month studio in San Francisco. Well, I do know one fellow who's, uh, you know, done a lot of great work towards employing people. Jim, you went right out on a limb, uh, you know, with with your company, Vree the Rockets and so on. You took people uh, from other industries or, or people that, you know, needed a break, needed a job and literally trained them from yeah. scratch, didn't you? Yeah. No, we recruited a lot of local talent, actually. And what I found was the manufacturing base here was incredibly... Uh, it was incredibly good. And not only do we have small companies that could build a lot of the stuff we needed, but the kind of people that lived here uh, were exactly what we needed for, for high-rate manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you pile on top of that what, what I consider you know the great brain trust that comes out of our universities here. We had no trouble recruiting people to, to Arizona. Clearly, not everybody wanted to come. And that's okay uh, because, you know, there are certain lifestyles that I don't necessarily want to see here anyhow. Right. I I like Arizona for what it is. I'm an import, Mm -hmm. and I liked what I found. For what it is, yeah. I didn't like it before I moved here. So uh, it was one of those things that for me was a great discovery. 
What was your role with Elon Musk and SpaceX? So he uh, called me out of the blue July of 2001 looking for Russian rockets. You go back to the, my, my time with the Russians, and mm -hmm. I, I spent years after that helping to convert Russian rockets to the ICBMs to satellite launchers. So I had a reputation uh, in the industry for being the guy that had the connections to the Russians. And at the time, they were selling cheap rockets to uh, to Western, you know, commercial efforts and things like that. So he called me and said, you know, he says the same thing today, that humanity, humanity needs to be this multiplanetary species. And uh, he needed a Russian rocket to do this this philanthropic mission that he wanted to do. He'd just been fired from from PayPal. Most people don't know that, but he went on vacation. And, and Peter Thiel and the guys removed him, and he came back. And it, he told me, he said, you know, the rule of this is never go on vacation when you're a CEO. Yeah, well, so, I, as I said, in, in the media industry, too, we used to have that. You know, I've been in the game 40 years now, and uh, you never went on holidays. You come back and someone's got you shot. Right, that's exactly right. <laughs> or whatever it may be. But there you go. So big names are being dropped around the table today. Look where he's gone on from there, you know. Yeah, uh, what's yeah. he got next coming up? Yeah, I think he's going to go to Mars. You know, that was clear from the beginning <laughs> when, uh, see, everybody laughs. They used to laugh me out no, of no, the room it's 15 the, years ago. It's the link in with the segue of we got rid of him. Let's send him to Mars. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the guy is the smartest guy I've ever known in my life, honestly. Really? Yeah. So he is genius. I remember oh, he's, he's pretty is. bright. Yeah. He's, he's sometimes difficult to get along with, you know. But well, aren't they all the geniuses? No. Are you difficult to get along with? I'm not a genius, so oh, I'm easy to get along with. <laughs> but, but no, he's, he's always He's had this this idea of going to Mars as as you know set up a private colony right and in the old days he used to bring out these these drawings of Mars bases you know he had people do yeah and I'd say Elon that's like talking about aliens and stuff put that yeah. away you know you got enough trouble saying you're going to build a rocket yourself well there you go and now now they're talking about there's already stuff on Mars right and stuff on the moon I mean what's your opinion of that do you have any ideas about that too Andrew I mean do you ever wonder. I guess for for what do you mean what for finding stuff on there just water you know any sort of no organic I'm talking about anything and everything they've got anything photos from the latest NASA missions and all this type of thing that never got out to the public before now it's all getting out there's all there's things there's like factories they reckon there's there's things coming out from the ground where air has to I don't know I mean well come on you'd be in the know Jim I would anyway. be in the know and people ask me this all the time they do and oh, I I'm apparently sorry. have never been cleared to have access to all the secret UFO factories at Area 51 or the well, secret that was my next question have you ever been there <laughs> no I've never been to Area 51 <laughs> but, but it does exist yeah I can confirm that for uh -huh. sure but uh, you know all these all these photos of Mars. Hell, I worked for Mike Mallon, who took you know whose cameras took most of those images, and he's never told me about them. So, so I'm I'm dubious, right? Mm -hmm. Do I believe that Martians may exist under the surface in microbial form? Yeah, I think it's very possible. Right in that, yeah. And um, but it is very feasible. I think another movie, um, Matt Damon was left on Mars, yeah. had to fend for himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How close is that to reality? That, that was that was good. So the guy that wrote the book um, originally just wrote it as an Amazon book, and it was so good he, he got it published, and then it got turned into a movie. And there, there you go. Andy Weir, and he, he's, he's, he's one of us. He's, he's a space nut. And uh, he wrote it. <laughs> yeah, he wrote it uh, very realistically. So, so I love that movie. To me, that's sort of how it'll happen. Um, what about national defense? How is that being impacted by space? So the entire uh, 
arena of space is is a place where war will be fought. It's already been fought there. Most people don't realize that our ground systems rely on space for an asymmetrical advantage that all you had to do was watch the Gulf War. Is we, we took this entire arsenal we built up for the Soviet Union and let it out on, on this tiny country of Iraq, mm. and we just walked over them in days. That was that was partly enabled by space. And since, since 1990, that capability has morphed uh, – probably a hundredfold in terms of its power. And, and what's happening is the other countries that are, are our peers and, and near peers plus our enemies have also emulated this, and some very well and some not so well. So what this really, really ends up happening is our space assets, both commercial and military, will be threatened in future conflicts. And we may not realize we're in a conflict when our space assets are getting attacked. And it may not be a kinetic attack. It may be a cyber attack. Mm. Or, or it may be... A... Yeah, that's a worry, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And More nobody's thinking about that stuff. Uh, and they surely now, and the government no. must be. There's just too many of them. What worries me the most, you know, Andrew, here is uh, the power grids, what it could do to the economy, banks. Uh, life in a day stops. Oh, absolutely. And, and we're not prepared to handle that. Yeah, and panic ensues and, you know, everything shuts down. And, yeah, no, that's definitely a fear. And you can almost see some of that, the fear spilling over with the coronavirus, for example, where yep. you have something that's really going to um, hurt infrastructure. We're not prepared for it. The markets are reacting negatively to mm -hmm. it. And there's a lot of panic and fear um, out there. And, you know, now multiply that with power grids were to go down or... If uh, infrastructure was to be shut down, you know, it could be a big problem. That's what worries me about bio-warfare, you know. Um, uh, there are some stories out there already that this was uh, bio-warfare. Um, a few people have done this deliberately for different reasons. It even involves finances and so on, but it's a nasty thing. It's pretty scary. Uh, but space, how far, how off was Reagan and the boys, do you think? Oh, from Space uh, Wars? Well, the, the missile defense program is reality today. Uh, I don't know if you realize it, but we have uh, interceptors in the hole in the ground in Fort Greeley, Alaska, that's defending us against anything that comes out of uh, North Korea and China and, and wherever else. Uh, it's limited, so it's not, it's not an umbrella that will protect us from everything, but it's very effective. And despite the reports that you see in the press, mm -hmm. uh, it will work. It won't work 100%, but that was never part of the promise. Mm -hmm. But war in space where you have you know Star Wars kind of things where they're shooting each other, I think we're always off from that. <laughs> um, well, you know, you want the space station itself, that's remarkable. Yeah, it is. And that's a joint effort, right? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't start out that way, but it ended up that way. It is that way now. Now, wouldn't it be lovely if all those countries stayed as a joint effort and worked together? Because they're not going to be countries that are going to be trying to fight us up there, right? That, that I mean, was... did you ever watch Star Wars? Oh, yeah, of course. You yeah. like all those shows, too? I preferred Star Trek, yeah. Well, Star... Star Trek as well, okay. Yeah. Do you ever, I mean, is it feasible? These writers aren't idiots. Sometimes I think they'll be given gifts in the night, Andrew, where they've been given visions to write the stuff that yeah. they do. Can we have ships like that? Of course, yeah. So, so Because there's no gravity. Yeah, right, exactly. So, so it's possible. We don't have the propulsion technology today. Well, that's the next question. That's why I'm worried. I, I, look, I was in Phoenix at the time when the lights were there. Now, there are millions of reports worldwide, right? There's got to be something sure. in relation Absolutely no to the so-called UFOs, if you want, these ships. I've often thought maybe it's the American government at 51. Finally, they've developed, you know, propulsion. Yeah. The, yeah. What's it called? Lesser, uh, Laser propulsion or something. Something yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. But how can a ship go like this and then, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it has to be something that we don't understand with today's physics, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's right. If you if you delve into physics deep enough, you understand our understanding of particles goes down to a certain level, and then it just falls apart. So hmm. this th- so so called theory of everything about how it all relates, there, there's still a lot of mystery to to physics, and uh, within that mystery real- lies a lot of secrets for mm-hmm. this kind of space flight, this kind of time travel, and uh, theoretically, it all is is possible. You know, what what fascinates me is the stories now of the releases of, you know, supposedly they've been amongst us for years. I just wish to God they would have helped us then with all the diseases, (laughs) cures for cancer. Uh, and all the rest of it. You're, you're a candidate in the uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's Man of the Year campaign, Andrew. Is that right? That's right. So, Tell me a little bit more about that and how people can connect uh, with you to learn more about that. Sure. So the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, uh, they, they've been around for 70 years now. And their real focus is, you know, raising funds to generate uh, research on uh, new novel therapies for, for blood cancer. And one of their big fundraising campaigns is the Man and Woman of the Year campaign, where they have candidates from around the country um, launch a, a campaign and a team to try and raise as much money and and compete against each other to see who can raise the most money in any given uh, region. Mm. And so uh, I'm one of those candidates this year. Our campaign uh, kicks off on, on March 19th, and over a 10-week period, we're going to try and uh, see how much money we can raise and uh, compete against uh, the other teams. Uh, all of them are Phoenix teams. I'm the only Tucson team right now. Uh, Last year's Man of the Year. All by your little self. <laughs> Last year's Man of the Year uh, winner was was from Tucson. So uh, you know, a lot of lot of hope there. But it, you know, people can uh, reach out to me on uh, LinkedIn or on our website if they want to learn more about how they can help with the campaign to uh, to generate these uh, uh, research dollars. And uh, or just help out with with volunteering and connections. Okay, is is there a, a set amount that you've targeted? So so my goal is to at least raise a hundred thousand dollars. Last year's Man of the Year wa- raised about eighty thousand, and the Woman of the Year raised over two hundred thousand. So mm. it's kind of a, a wide variety uh, and wide range. How are you going about it? What what are you doing? Sausage sizzles aren't going to do it. So so there's a lot of different ways. You know through you know asking family and friends and connections uh, for donations, for seeking corporate sponsors who can right. uh, write larger checks um, to doing all sorts of different events. Uh, throughout the region to, to raise money and um, including at the at the end of the campaign a, a silent auction and gala uh, mm-hmm. to, to really kick it off and, and end it with a so the uh, companies open those purses that's a big thing tax writer for them would it be yes so they okay. are 501c3 so they they do get a um, tax write-off for the charitable contribution so. that's great and just give us the details on that again so uh Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Man of the Year um, kicks off on March 19th. You can uh, reach out to me through LinkedIn or through my uh, company website, uh, bluestonevp.com, if you want to learn more about how to how to donate or to how to assist with the campaign, um, especially if you're passionate about leukemia. It. Great. It's a good cause, man. Wish you all the best Thank in the you. world with that. Uh, Jim, do you believe that humans will settle on Mars, do you think, in our lifetime anyway? Absolutely. I wouldn't have said that 30 years ago. So, so what are we off, 10 years, 20 years? I think probably 10 to 20 years, yeah. I think you'll probably see the first ones attempting to go there in about 10 years. And we do have to walk around with spacesuits and all of that because yeah. of there's no air, right? Yeah, it's like living at 100,000 feet on, on Earth. There you go, then. Um, what is the rightful government role in space? 
as we do move into the cosmos. Great Have you got any question. set ideas on that? <laughs> yeah, so I'm... You, you, Stay out of it. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm a libertarian, which means I'm okay. very, very much for, that for is, small yes. uh, government. So f- my view is a little tainted, but you know, my view is the rightful role of government is as a user of, of space, not necessarily the dominator of space. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, you know, just be prior to this, I was on the phone for a half an hour with a VC firm out of San Francisco asked, answering the same question, right? And what, what you find is that the government has really stagnated the technological progress uh, post, say, the Apollo era in space. Right. And the, the only real progress was coming out of the military. And it was, it was a limited sort of rate of progress. And when you get VCs who are willing to put skin in the game, entrepreneurs like me who have crazy ideas who are willing to, you know, submit parts of their life to, to making these things a reality, yeah. you just get more progress. And so... Well, look at what's his name? Um, uh, Virgin Airlines. Uh, yeah, right. You know, um, balloons around the world, and next minute taking people up into space. Yeah, Richard, Richard's a colorful guy. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's the only guy I've ever had to sign a non-disclosure agreement to walk into the same room with. But, <laughs> but uh, you know what, what he's doing is an example. What inherent right does the government to say that 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 we can as humans go to Mars and that we have to bring the government along? Right? There's there's right. no there's okay. no inherent argument that says that that has to be. You can argue that that's a good idea that you have to have some form of governance, mm-hmm. right? But but if you believe that governance is is something that is that is a power given by the people to those to to well I, okay okay but let's think about this for a minute you're sitting here saying that as an american someone in russia sitting there saying that maybe china's doing the same thing and that nutcase over there in korea he's doing the same thing now we're back up there having wars but right. it's on mars right exactly so is it first in best dressed do you think uh, probably something like that, and 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 settle and set in your defenses. Maybe that's why the government is more concerned about military. L- look at how this continent was settled, right? So it was settled by this crazy guy Columbus, who had this idea that the Earth wasn't square; he wasn't going to fall off the edge. Financed by a, a crazy queen who had her private money and said, "Go do it," mm-hmm. and then gradually it was settled by people who were willing to leave the comfort of their homes in Europe. From a from a town that they that they knew to something they've never seen, they can't see. They have no way of knowing how they're going to survive, and they just get on a ship and they go. Mm-hmm. So that's how the rest of the the solar system will be settled, and the government will follow. The government will follow as as a part of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think that the Chinese or the Russians or anybody else, the Americans for that matter, are going to be organized enough to send armies to any of these places no. and defend them. These long, long. We're, we're the crazy nuts that are going to go there and eke out a living because that's what that's how we're wired. We're hardwired for this well do you want to get up there hell no i like it here you know and <laughs> how much are they charging a seat to go into space i mean we're not going on the moon and we're not going on mars but i've lost track a hundred thousand i think it more. is more than yeah, that i think branson charges a hundred thousand on and but they're booked up yeah they're booked up years out and and really it's a the, the worst part i suppose is getting up getting up there safely because once once you're up there and you don't have the gravity, it'd be a lovely view, wouldn't it? Well, but you got to come back. You're again. probably safer doing that than you are driving home in your car. Let's be honest. Wow, okay? there you go, Andrew. See, you know, it's uh, and how close is that then? How far, you know, before that's likely to be a reality? So, so I think space tourism is going to be limited. It's it's going to start happening over the next three or four years. Uh, I think we're really truly at that point. It's going to happen, but it's going to be still very limited to very wealthy people. Ah, uh, yes. There we go. The rich again. <laughs> Not everybody can afford to go on a cruise around the world either. Well, um, 
our kids, I suppose. Andrew, are you married? You got children? I am, I am married, but uh, no kids, just okay. a couple of dogs. All right, so. a couple of dogs. That reminds me of a joke. I think it was Steve Allen and Marty Rossi. Um, oh, it was a long time ago, and they were performing at the Copacabana, and uh, he, he yells out, uh, Okay, so any messages for President Kennedy? And he says, yeah, send out more broads and no dogs. <laughs> oh, no, more dogs and no, no more broads and no dogs. <laughs> Never forget that one. Well, you're a very down-to-earth visionary, Jim. Um, anything exciting you want to tell us about? Well, I'll, I'll just say uh, a lot of us were disappointed that Vector uh, didn't make it, but uh, I'll, just, I'll just leave you with a little tantalizing tease that uh, uh, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that ever gives up. So uh, just, just uh, wait and see what we do. Yeah. I got a question to ask you in relation to what I would think would be on a lot of people's minds. Now we've got all the 5G things going up, and then there's somebody else. There's these little satellites flying around. How much stuff, they call it space junk, how much stuff is up there, mm -hmm. and how on earth do we get around it or through it all the time yeah. with this millions of dollars worth of equipment we send up? So it's a great question, and I get asked it a lot. And I forget the exact number of objects, but it was close to 100,000 is what I remember. And uh, it's it's everything from, you know, boosters from the 60s to <laughs> debris, uh, you know. the So they don't all fall down and burn out then? So the lower part of the atmosphere does. The atmosphere acts like a sponge, if you will. It scrubs the speed of the of the debris and the satellites and so on. And, and gradually they, they deorbit and burn up. So, so there's like this clean zone. And the further away you get from the Earth, the longer that takes. And if you're up say about 800 kilometers away, that's like 100 years. So so the debris problem is really in, in very, very limited orbits. And I think what's going to happen, um, and I was working with the uh, Secretary of Commerce uh, last year on this, was, was regulatory reform requiring insurance for satellite operators that go up, that that insurance is reflection of the risk of recontact, so it's kind of like how we tame the 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 seas with mm. commercial operators on the sea. You require certain liability insurance. But I mean, which company is going to step up for that one? How do you do insurance for that? Because millions. So again, if you if you're an American satellite operator and you launch a satellite, you have to get a license by NOAA, and so to get that license, the regulatory authority of the government is valid to impose insurance requirements on that. So when we were in the rocket building business, we mm -hmm. had to, we had to get liability insurance against third party damages. The government covered the first you know right. 10, ten million or so, but after that we had to cover it. Yeah. How do you get on with people pointing the finger at you if you make wonderful rockets that go to other countries that maybe aren't our friends? <laughs> well, when I was in the rocket business, we uh, didn't make stuff that would uh, put payloads in other people's uh, backyards. We were trying to put them into space, so right. we avoided that topic. Okay. So, Andrew, is there anything specific you'd like to mention maybe that you've got uh, uh, coming up now with Bluestone? Because uh, uh, Bluestone Venture Partners, are you looking for more uh, unique? Of course, you'd be looking for unique uh uh, products, but uh, is there anybody anything exciting on the horizon? You think you're going to be? Yeah, getting? I mean, we see we see a lot of really exciting technology and companies, and you know, for the ones we really like, we give them a term sheet, and sometimes they accept it. So that's that's always exciting, and we're always looking for new opportunities. And now, new, a term sheet is what now stops them going somewhere else. So this is this is to really to help value the company and tell what we're willing to invest in it, um, and all the 
the different terms that come along. Oh, okay. With that, so. And what happens to the others that you're not? You just decline nicely. Yeah, correct. So uh, if we don't give a term sheet, we we say you know maybe maybe another time or maybe this isn't a fit for us. Um, mm -hmm. but you know we we still try and introduce them to people who might be able to uh, to invest in them to keep the ecosystem going. And it really all comes back to our own ecosystem and uh, the innovation economy here in Southern Arizona because. We want to see all of the different startups and companies succeed, even if they're they're not in our sweet spot or not in the biosciences. We want to see, you know, all of these entrepreneurs succeed, generate a lot of jobs, sell their company, go back and invest as angel investors in other companies or do it again as a serial entrepreneur, bring in top talent. And when some of those people leave, they start their own companies. We, we just need this whole collaborative community here and right. uh, innovation economy. And that's what we're, we're trying to do all together. I'm going to have all your details up on the site, TucsonBusinessRadioX.com. It's going to stay there. Uh, but uh, people can contact you directly at Andrew.Moore at BluestoneVP.com. Correct. Okay. And there's your LinkedIn, if you just want to give that one once more. Yes. LinkedIn.com slash. I forget. In slash Andrew Moore. Yeah. It'll be up there. It'll be up there. So you'll be able to find me on LinkedIn or on our own website. Remember Bluestone, Bluestone Venture Partners. That's the key. Good luck with your career on that. Great. Thank you. And Jim, of course, anybody can get hold of you. You're going to have, well, you're Jim at R2Space.com. But what's your favorite site for people to go to? Uh, probably you can go to my website, jimcantrell.com, okay. and see the latest uh, meanderings. And then uh, Twitter's probably a good place to get a hold of me, James N. Cantrell. As well? Okay. Last question. Uh, starting with you, Andrew, just, just out, of, out of the box. Um, if you had to start it all over again, your career, all right, would you have taken the same path, do you think? I think I would just I had a, a really unique path and, you know, somehow it all worked out, especially graduated in 2008, right when everything was, you know, starting to blow up. But, um, you know, through through the different opportunities and a little bit of serendipity, I find myself back here in Tucson investing in a community that I'm passionate about and mm -hmm. with, with people that can really help this this region succeed and i'm really excited about that that's good that's good so in one sentence any advice to anybody maybe looking which way to go in life i think i think the key thing is you know keep keep persevering through adversity and you know you learn as much from your failures or more from your failures than you do with your successes so um just remember that <laughs> very good andrew moore Andrew, uh, director, Bluestone Venture Partners, and doing a lot of wonderful work uh, throughout the world. You're going to hear about that uh, and read about them more. And uh, I'm glad they're here in Tucson. A little Jimmy Cantrell, Mr. Rocket Man. <laughs> Have you had it all over again? Well, what do you think? I'm still living the dream, man. Every day is a new day, and every day I wake up and I think this is a great day. So I'm still writing the story. Fantastic. Fantastic. Jim Cantrell. And uh, find his site. I think he just mentioned it before. JimCantrell.com. Uh, you're going to find a lot of interesting reading, a lot of good things to follow up on. Your last bit of advice then for anybody? Well, so I often get asked what makes people successful. My, my kids ask me this and so on as if I were to know. But uh, my, <laughs> my advice is you got got to do something first and foremost that you're passionate about. And because if you're not passionate about what you're doing, it's drudgery. 
and it has to be something that people want to buy. So there has to be demand, and um, it has to be something you're good at. So uh, if you do those three things, don't worry about the money. Most people focus on the money. It's the wrong place to focus. Yeah. The money's just a reflection of the value you've created. There you go. And money's really only as good as it doing good things anyway, isn't it? Well, and you, you end up finding out that money causes more problems than you ever realized it would. So there you go. Very good advice from two bright men. Thank you, fellas. I've really enjoyed the show. Tucson yeah. means business. It's been great having you on. Appreciate you both. Very busy guys. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. We trust you enjoyed this particular episode. This podcast will be here on the network and, of course, on Tucson Business Radio X and on various platforms throughout the globe. So wherever you may hear this, hope you've enjoyed the show. If you ever want to contact me, by all means do so. Just to Mark Bishop at businessradiox.com. And, uh, again, I want to thank the 49ers Golf and Country Club. They're famous here uh, in Tucson. And should you ever visit Arizona, don't just stay up in Phoenix. Come down to Tucson. We've got some lovely courses. And our people are great. Okay? We'll see you another time.